I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. You like to move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. You like to move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. You like to move Good day, everybody. My name is Dan Scully, and welcome back to I Like To Movie Movie. Uh, today's episode, we're going to play it a little bit loose. I have been in Seattle all week, and so I've not really had the chance to sit down and write an episode, but I do want to talk about some of the stuff that I watched. Of course, today we will be centering upon a double feature that I did over the last two days that was some of the best times I have ever had at a movie theater. I'm talking about Titane, or is it pronounced Titane? I have no clue. Either way, it's fucking awesome. And of course, No Time to Die, the final Daniel Craig Bond movie. Um, as always, you can find our show here at Movie Movie Cast on all of the things. Um, I invite you to reach out and get in touch with me at movie movie cast at not at sorry movie movie cast at gmail.com. Um, reach out. You can say whatever you want. You can say like, hey, I want to cover this movie. That's great. We'll do it. You say, hey, I don't want to cover that movie. Chances are I'll probably end up covering that movie out of spite. You can say, hey, this is a great show. You're so sexy. That's great. I'm into that. You can be like, fuck you, dude. Cool too. Little interactivity. Inter is that the word? Interactivity is all that I am asking for. That's all I'm asking for. That's all he's asking for. Anyone name the movie? Come on, Cannibal the Musical. So, uh, yeah, man, this has been a wild week. Uh, you know, we did uh, Seattle and Mount Rainier, and I want to go on record as saying that Mount Rainier is like the most beautiful, natural thing I've ever come across in my life. Holy hell, it's gorgeous. And uh, yeah, and then last night, we uh, Jenna and I went to see John Mulaney's new hour live and it was uh it was hilarious really really funny stuff so i uh, hope that he makes a special out of it it's uh pretty wild we know he's had a, a interesting arc the last couple months and a lot of that has made its way into his act but yes so at movie movie cast on all the things please like subscribe and share pop a five star review in there if you can if you hate the show Still leave a five-star review, and then in the comments, you can write whatever the hell you want. Say whatever garbage you want to say to me. Um, half of it is probably true and and something I'd agree with, but say it anyway. Or if you love the show, leave a nice comment. It's the stars I'm looking for. That's what we need to have is the stars. Stars are key. Because enough, you know, the, the algorithm doesn't read I mean, it probably reads words. Uh, I know that the, the CIA reads all of our words. So let the CIA know that my podcast is good by giving it five-star review. Um, so yeah, what have, uh, what have I been watching lately? I know that um, before I go on vacation on a plane, typically in a place where I have uh, a chance for jet lag, since I cannot sleep on planes, I've tried. Um, I just, I would hate to be on a, this isn't why, but this is something that bugs me out. I would hate to be on a plane fall asleep, and then have someone shake you awake and be like, hey, 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 wake up. Just so you know, we're, we're crashing. We're hurtling towards the ground. You've got like 30 seconds to live. I'd be like, fuck, this is a bad way to wake up, man. Now, granted, I'm not afraid of crashing in a plane. I It's it's statistically, you know, 
irrelevant to even think about, uh, you know, when you're traveling. I don't mind air travel, but for some reason that always stuck in my head. But I just can't sleep on a plane. I can't sleep sitting up. I have to be in a certain position on my bed, and it's just, it has to be that way, or else my body won't do it. I can be dead tired. It just will not happen. But uh, anytime that I could be facing some jet lag, I typically go and see movies late into the night in order to offset my sleep so that I could do the math and travel, blah, blah, blah. You know how it goes. And so I did that by staying out super late to see a screening of Lamb, the new A24 movie, which, um, you know, that was, it's pretty good. I liked it. I did like it. It's very stylish. Um, there was a point in the movie, though, where I was like, all right, let's 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 move it along, let's wrap it up, because there's a lot of novelty that you can get out of a little lamb baby that, uh, that you know, looks like a, a child. <laughs> Man, that, it is a really wild movie. But uh, there's only so much mileage you can get out of that before it's got to do something it's never done before, and I hate to say this about something like lamb, but a lot of the plot was kind of, like, it goes where you would expect. Until it doesn't. And once it doesn't, it kind of drew me back in and it wraps up the movie. I definitely recommend seeing it. It's uh, it's very, very good. Just not, like, I thought I was going to be over the moon for it. And I found it to just be, like, pretty solid. But it's certainly unique. And uh, certainly worth checking out. And then I furthered, furthered my sleep uh, scheduling by the next day seeing a... Uh, late screening of Venom, Let There Be Carnage. And um, I won't spoil, because there's a pretty huge post-credits thing that uh, is shocking, but at the same time, I found myself not shocked by it, because it does just seem like, yeah, of course this is what's happening. Um, I loved I loved Venom, Let There Be Carnage. It's a sloppy movie. Uh, you can tell that certain areas of it were cut to shit, but it's so funny, and they really lean into the comedy aspect this time to have Tom Hardy and Venom sort of be a, a romantic duo, because uh, they are physically linked, and they have to put up with one another's personalities, which is, you know, at its basic descriptors, what a romance can be. And, uh, I don't know, they do a lot of fun things with that. It's very funny. It's very weird. You know, they break up for a bit. Venom has a really wild motivational speech that he performs at a uh, at a uh, very colorful nightclub. And so they, you know, they, they tie a lot of fun things like that. You know, like, like Venom, he doesn't come out of the closet, but he does. He even uses the term coming out of the closet, like the Eddie closet. Like now he's free, that he's not attached to a human. But um, I don't want to say too much. It's a lot of fun. You can tell there's certain things that were clearly reworked and switched around. and but That's kind of been the charm of of the Venom series so far. Is like comparatively, if we look at, you know, any of the, the you know larger superhero entries, say in the MCU and stuff... You know, there's a certain... It's weird that the movies aren't getting better looking, and it's, I think, just because they they have this down to a process. They can, like, you know, plunk it into a machine and pull it out. And so they're these clean products, but oftentimes soulless. Some better than others, you know. Like, I, I thought Shang-Chi was pretty awesome, but, like, Black Widow didn't do it. You know, there's a fine line, and I don't quite know what it is yet. But the Venom movies, for all their flaws, uh, usually in sloppiness are also a lot of fun because of scrappiness. And 
because it's it's its own thing, not tied to a larger brand identity, it's really a lot of fun. Um, so we'll see what happens there, but I definitely recommend it. And that is one of two times that I got to watch the wonderful Naomi Harris on a big screen uh, recently, uh, because No Time to Die, as we know, she is Muddy Penny, and much in the way that Craig is the best Bond, Harris is the best Muddy Penny. I, I said it! I said it! Don't at me! Don't at me, dog! On the flight, on the way over, I was going to watch The Green Mile because I have never seen The Green Mile and I just finished reading The Green Mile, but uh, when you download stuff in an app to watch on the plane, um, which is how you do it because you don't have signal up there, uh, a lot of people complain about HBO Max. I have never had a problem with the app, but now I have and it was in the downloading process. So now now I stand with the people who say, hey, get an update in there, HBO Max, because I really wanted to watch The Green Mile on the flight, because when else am I going to have three hours and ten minutes to sit down and, and watch? Man, that's a long-ass movie. But it didn't work. I couldn't get it to watch. So instead, I just revisited There Will Be Blood, I believe for the first time front to back since the first time. It's a movie that I've seen in pieces over and over again over the years, but never watched it front to back. And uh, it's it's as incredible as I remember and even more incredible. What a monumentally strange movie. I think that's what everyone forgets about it. Uh, I wouldn't say everyone forgets about it, but I, you know, I'll just say it this way. I think it's something that I forgot about it is that... You know, I watch this movie, I think, oh yeah, it's going to be like a historical epic with a classical arc, and like, yes, but no, absolutely not. It's a profoundly weird movie. It's it's a fucked up movie. It's a dark movie. Um, I, I found myself engaging with different aspects of it this time around than before. The first time I watched it, we were sort of in the, uh, we were in, in an oil conscious era in terms of like, you know, sending... Sending our boys in blue, no, boys in blue are cop, whatever. Our, sending our boys in green or whatever they are uh, overseas to die on lies about oil. Um, so the first time I watched it, I definitely watched it through the lens of, you know, just how ridiculous it is that oil is such a thing that so many die, kill, and steal and cheat over it. And so there we were watching a movie where a guy through oil, you know, really becomes a, a pretty awful person. Um, watching it this time around, that was still there, but what really got me now was the ego play between Daniel Plainview and uh, the brothers Paul and Eli. And uh, it was two men that were selling an intangible now, granted, oil is indeed tangible, but as this middleman uh, between the oil and the money, Daniel Plainview makes it intangible for the people. And so as he's turning this small little village into an oil land, at the same time, there's also a small little parish that in a way is becoming a movement, a movement so strong that at certain points, uh, Plainview has to kowtow to it. And it's something that he doesn't shine to very well. And there's a lot of spite that carries that. At the same time, we look at the character of Eli. He's got the movement, he's got the hearts of the people, but his only way to monetize it is to ask. And I think that is an ego. And so, you know, this ego tug and pull between the two of them is what really stood out this time around. 
Um, but then once again, as with all Paul Thomas Anderson, who only makes good movies, I found it much funnier than I remember it being. There's a lot of extremely dry humor, like very, very dry humor. I would say that there is a well of it. See what I did there? Oh, God. Okay. And then HBO Max on the flight back actually kicked in and started working again. I still couldn't watch Green Mile, but I did revisit Time Cop. And if there is a movie in existence where the late, great, and I believe latently problematic uh, Ron Silver, if there was ever a movie where Ron Silver gets to just, like, chew it out against other problematic fave, uh, fuck, why am I losing his name? James Woods! I would love to see it. They both have this same, just, like, unhinged, cokehead, angry, just, like, edgy, eh, kind of guy. And when they play it right, it totally works for them. And as the villain in Time Cop, as the sen- as Senator Macomb, Ron Silver is just, oh, he's unbelievable. He's so good. So R.I.P. to him. What I wa- watching Time Cop, it kind of brought into focus for me how much I miss set pieces. You know, because we do a lot of things on the blue screen or green screen now. I miss like larger sets. I miss. One-liners from our action stars. Much as I love John Wick, he's a little too dour for a one-liner. Um, and superstars that have enough physicality, have, like, good physicality and good charisma, and therefore they can get away with acting and speaking in a way that no other human being ever has or ever will. Because in a post-Jean-Claude Van Damme world where, you know, he's now... He's sort of rehabbing his image uh, through being self-aware. Um, and as I understand it, I mean, I, JCVD was a really good movie. But as I understand it through, like, Jean-Claude Van, what is it, Van Pooperstein or something? I forget what it is. Through that, sort of rehabbing his image by being meta. And so, much respect, but I always loved Van Damme growing up as a kid. And he was, like, he was superstar, like, biggest star in the world for for. A short amount of time, but like he was the action guy. But I'm thinking, like, okay, so you know, Schwarzenegger, Van Damme, Seagal, all dudes that were commanding box office presences at some point, who were the archetypal male hero. This is what you do when you're a dude and you've got to do what's right and serve justice. And none of them are capable of delivering a line that sounds at all like they are a member of the human race. And that used to be the standard. And now, like, our our action stars, they're just, like, they're good fucking actors, you know? Like, John Wick rocks because Keanu Reeves makes a really, really compelling character out of him. You know, uh, uh, who's the other one? Ethan Hunt. That's a guy that we love because the characters perform so well. And also Tom Cruise, you know, threatens to kill himself once every three years by doing a big stunt. Fails to, films it, we watch it. That's got to be the pitch meeting for every uh, Mission Impossible movie. Where they're like, all right, well, we got we to gotta get some spy shit. Tom Cruise is like, well, we could tie my ass to a plane. They're like, all right, sold. We'll tie his ass to a plane. We'll film it. We'll get the movie after that. And and then they do it. They tie his ass to a plane, and and insurance companies probably freak out. Um, Time Cop, though, yeah, like if you know, like the thing about Time Cop is like, I guess that was 
that was like a classy big budget movie. That's what a blockbuster looked like then. And it is like pretty silly, very goofy, kind of stupid. But it, it, I don't want to say it knows all that, but those were hurdles that we didn't have to clear with blockbusters at one point. And now I think we do. And I don't, I don't want to say that it's a good or bad thing. I love blockbusters from all time. It's just one of those changes that you note over time. There has to be some like verisimilitude. I hope I said that right. In our movies now in order for them to play. Um, this one, nah, none of that. The futuristic cars are like boxy gear things with like steampunky pipes and, you know, it, and it, it looks silly, but in 1994, I think it was, you know, that looked, that looked so damn futuristic. It's like, well, of course that's what cars look like in the future. In what world would that ever look cool? But it only looks cool from the realm of the future and the future, of course, being 2004. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's. I love a time travel movie. I love the way that the time travel elements were used here. And, you know, that's that's just what it is. Um, oh, man, I watched... Okay, so I watched the new Chappelle special. And um, I guess we could say that the reviews of it have been divisive. I liked it. I tend to like Chappelle. Um, you know, I don't think that... Uh, I, I I think that he's aware that there's going to be pushback, but this is how I guess a, a conversation will be facilitated. And um, I think that the special is very funny. I think that his Netflix specials overall have been funny and thoughtful. Um, I don't think that they rank amongst his like greatest work. Like Killing Him Softly is like really is that Killing Him Softly is that the if I just confused him with Chris Rock, I'm gonna feel like such a racist. Now, Chris Rock is Bring the Pain, Bigger and Blacker. Um, yeah, so I think it's killing him softly. Like, you know, that's like real, but I've always liked Chappelle because I think that he means what he says. And I think that he says what he means and whether you agree with him, uh, whether you like his style, it's often, you know, crass. I, I appreciate the fact that he's thoughtful about it. I appreciate the fact that I do believe he's not opining to please a crowd. I, I think he, this is his thoughts. And so I, you know, I will always appreciate that about an act um yeah curious to see what he does next uh i know a lot of people aren't gonna watch it and yeah i get it uh but if you are gonna watch some Chappelle, you should watch his 846 special on uh youtube the one that he did in the wake of the george floyd murder it was uh it's, it's like essential stuff uh you should check that out and of course, because the new Halloween is coming out, I will be reviewing it this week. I watched Halloween, and I watched Halloween 2018. Uh, it is spooky season. I do love a Halloween movie. Um, someone asked, like, what makes a movie seasonally appropriate for Halloween? Someone asked that on Twitter. I forget who. But my answer was orange. I think orange, the color, is really the key for me. Because a lot of people like certain things on Halloween, and, and like... Like, Trick or Treat's a very Halloween movie, and, like, some people would be like, oh, I like watching opera on Halloween, and opera may or may not feel like a Halloween movie to one person or another, you know, like, I think that Rocky Horror feels like a Halloween movie, I also think that Phantom of the Paradise feels like a Halloween movie, to make that connection, um, but to me, like, I like slashers around Halloween, slashers around Halloween always make me just feel warm, and I think that it's because in the original Halloween film, the way that Haddonfield is depicted is the way that I remember the weather, the color palette, the overall feel of what Halloween felt like to me as a child. 
And that's always going to be very special to me. I think that's what resonates with a lot of people about Halloween is, you know, it's dark, it's fucked up, it's weird, but also it's, you know, it was a fun time as a kid and, and you get that feeling. Haddonfield feels like that very much in the original Halloween. Now, is it because Halloween's started to be designed after that film since I was a child after that? Or did it just capture it? I don't know. Probably we'll never know. But um, I like watching entries from the Halloween series around Halloween because they feel like Halloween to me. And there's plenty of orange. But in anticipation of Halloween Kills, which I've tried to avoid trailers of, but I finally just got excited and, and watched one the other day. I like the direction it's going. Um, it looks like it's going to be pretty wild. It seems the advanced reviews are just saying like a lot of it is empty killing. And that to me is Halloween, baby. Bring it on. So hopefully it's got some good orange in it. And so in anticipation of that, I decided to revisit the... Uh, the current canon of Halloween, because Halloween is choose your own adventure. There's so many different canons. Uh, my preferred canons are like three all by itself, whoosh, full stop. Or uh, my, my favorite Michael Myers canon is uh, Halloween, Halloween 2, and then ends in Halloween H2O, and or H20, whatever you want to call it. That title, it's crazy. It, that's a crazy title. Halloween, H2O, H20. It's half a pun. Like, yes, it's Halloween, H, 20 years after the original, H20. But, like, H2O conjures water, and there is nothing in that movie. Like, there should be a connection to water in order for that to fully work. You know, like, it, it has to fully work. And it only half works. But we don't call attention to it because I think, and, and, based on conversations I've had with others, uh, we look back on H2O with pretty high regards. You know, it's the post-Scream Halloween, but I, I appreciate it as a Laurie Strode closing tale. I think that uh, the way it closes her story is satisfying. I think the way that her character is portrayed wonderfully by Jamie Lee Curtis and wonderfully written by uh, fucking whoever wrote that shit. Um, I will look it up. Uh, I feel like... That that's like a very true extension of Laurie Strode as I believe her to be after Halloween one and Halloween two, and I generally enjoy the um, the Myers lineage being part of her character. I I appreciate that. I I think it works, um, even if it was just something they tacked on in part two. I think honestly, my defense of this arc is mostly that I think Halloween two kicks a serious amount of ass. And so I just always want it to be canon, and this is where it's best served. Um, that said, I do like the new canon. I think that the new canon's cool. I think that it's interesting. I don't always love the way that this Laurie is written. You know, I think they do a good job. I think she's, she's written as complete. I like that she's broken and, you know, is now as dangerous as, at least as dangerous as Dr. Loomis, and certainly dangerous to... Uh, Michael and to Roy, Toby Huss's character, and uh, I like it. I think that it's cool, and I think that this movie earns it. It's just not my favorite depiction of of Laurie Strode. I think Jamie Lee Curtis does a does a good job with it too, but I just I don't buy that this is the same Laurie Strode. Uh, not to not to. Not to minimize her uh, her trauma that she suffered in the first movie, which when you watch it, it's like, you know, when you rewatch Star Wars and you realize that Luke and Obi-Wan only knew each other for like a couple hours before, before like that was it. He was just some weird old dude until a couple hours later and then he's dead. Um, 
he like he he's hung up on Obi-Wan more than uh Princess Leia's hung up on Alderaan. And um yeah, like she under of course she undergoes a horrifying thing at the end of Halloween, but like she's only aware something weird is going on for like the last couple minutes of Halloween. So I think her being a crazy vengeance-fueled old lady, uh it's badass, but like I'm not quite there yet. And I think Halloween 2 actually would get me there. Unfortunately, in the new canon, Halloween uh, is not, Halloween 2 is not part of it. But, anywho, revisiting Halloween 2018, I I was reminded of how badass the slasher elements are. Uh, Michael Myers does some really effective, scary stuff. But, like, the way that they brought in the daughter and the teens, like, pretty shitty. <laughs> It was just kind of dumb. Like, yeah, it's great. You 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 know run up the body count. Uh, you, you tie in Lonnie Lamb, uh, the kid who always told stories in the first one. His son, and that's something I didn't put together before. It's his son is the one dating, um, the the youngest Strode. Um, it's got that great moment of uh, Judy Greer as Karen, uh, when she pretends to be scared. And so Michael steps into view and she has that gotcha moment, shoots him really badass stuff. Um, but I do think that three generations of Strode women fucking up Michael Myers, as much as it rocks, I feel like it would land better if, if it, if there was the lineage still in Canon. Um, I don't know. That's just a personal preference thing. I feel like that would work better. So it goes. Um, I do, I do love it though. I love where it ends and man, Halloween kills looks good. All right, let's get into the, that's what I watched over vacation. Um, also if you get out to Seattle, two things I definitely got to recommend to you. One is the museum of pop culture. Um, shout out to Bauer. He, uh, recommended that to me and it's awesome. And there's a, there's a, uh, like a horror exhibit there. So they have like a Jason costume, they got a xenomorph, they've got Betsy Palmer's head, they've got critters, they've got a Candyman hook, they've got like all this cool, uh, I almost said paraphernalia, sure, per- uh, memorabilia of, on display, really, really cool. Um, they have like a Nirvana exhibit, which is pretty awesome, highly recommend that. And the other thing is, get out to this restaurant called Biscuit Bitch. Biscuit bitch made the best biscuit I've ever had in my life, and when you pick it up, they call you a bitch. It's great. They're like, here you go, bitch. Enjoy. And you're like, thanks, bitch. Um, really good stuff, and the grits are fantastic. So, Titane. Or is it Titane? I don't know. I don't speak French, goddammit! But holy fucking shit. What? What a picture. What a picture. Ah, what a picture. So it's a whole... Oh my god. So uh, anybody who's listened to this show knows about my deep and abiding love for Raw. One of the strongest debut films ever released. Oh my god. It's an incredible cannibal story that I originally saw as the secret screening at the Philadelphia Film Festival, which BT dubs Philadelphia Film Festival. Bring back the secret screening. Bring it back. 
I love it. Everybody loves it. It's so much fun. Just because at Raw we got stuck in the rain outside, I didn't mind. We were eventually moved. One guy did mind and did strip off his shirt like an asshole in the uh, in the theater. It was hilarious. But then we all watched Raw, and it was awesome. So uh, Raw was the feature debut of uh, Julia Ducorno. I, I know I'm going to, oh my god, I probably fucked that up so badly. Julia Ducorno. Holy hell. Just absolutely amazing movie. So, of course, it was natural that whatever she did next was going to be very, very exciting. And what she did next was Titan. Um, I'll let you know when we get into spoilers, because I am going to need to talk spoilers for a second, I think. Or, you know, I'll let you know. I Maybe I won't. But, um, my God. It, it, it ah, ah, ha, ha. This movie has caused walkouts at certain things because it is hardcore, but it's also getting a lot of art house love. I mean, it already won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, and you know, an honor shared by a lot of other movies that that are you know kind of a uh, breaking new ground. I mean, uh, Pulp Fiction won the Palme d'Or. Um, you know, uh, uh, Uncle Boon Me, you know, they, they, it's, it, it's a pretty broad expanse, so it's not, like, surprising that something as off the wall as Tatain would, uh, Tatain, I always, every time I say Tatain, I always think of, uh, Spinal Tap, the Sistain, you, you play, uh, you go, you have a bite, you come back, uh, it's the Sistain, um, it, that's just always in my head, and, um, yeah, it's, it's a, fuck, man, I don't even know how to describe it, and I want to try and avoid, like, I wish I could avoid that thing where I say that it's evocative of a previous filmmaker, because I, I think it's it's worth noting that Julia Ducournau, as much as I'm probably fucking up her name, is, like, a really new and exciting voice. Especially because Raw being hardcore but accessible comes, you know, right after that is Tatane, which is, uh, which is doubly hardcore and a little less accessible. I, I wouldn't say that it's inaccessible. It's not. Uh, it's not impenetrable or anything like that. It's not surreal, but it's definitely not as classically formatted <laughs> as something like Raw. Um, man, it's so good. So yeah, I want to avoid doing that, but I, I I have to make visual comparisons. I I think stylistically, I it was evocative of something like Lose, a movie that that. I love and actually carries a, a similar space in my heart as just like an exciting new voice for Tillman Singer, who in a previous episode I mistakenly referred to as Pat Tillman, Ugh, which he was the guy, uh, the football player who after 9-11 decided to join the military and then got killed in a friendly fire incident and they tried to cover up that it was friendly fire. Horrifying stuff, but not as horrifying as some of the things that you see in, I'm going to say Titan now, I feel like that's that's more right. Stein. It's insane. And Titane is insane. And so it's... There's there's two central performances, really. One is Agatha Roussel, um, who plays Alexia, and then the other one is Vincent Lindon, who plays Vincent. Um, both powerhouse performances. So, um, I'm gonna recommend that you go into this movie totally blind. I went in without having seen a trailer, just going in on the pedigree alone, and I'm really glad that I did. But I'm about to talk 
light plot elements that may be considered spoilers. I'm not going to do anything that I would consider a spoiler. So in Titan, which, you know, is visually evocative of Luz, you know, is probably the most accurate thing we could refer to as, as Cronenbergy, um, outside of like Possessor, which was literally Cronenbergy, at least through DNA. Um, but I can't stress enough that it's a new thing. Like it's, it's, yeah, it's Cronenbergian, but it's, it's actually do, do Cornell. Now, it's good to call out and I, Julia do Cornell, Nian. Um, so, like, the basic plot element is Alexia, as a little girl, uh, really has a thing for cars, like, really has a thing for cars, and through circumstances of of childhood uh, irresponsibility, childhood uh, rambunctiousness, and a lapse in parental judgment, she ends up in a horrifying car accident that leaves her with a uh, titanium plate in her head which I understand is uh, something to do with the uh, title. So maybe it is Titane. Sistein. And um, as an adult, she dances on cars at street races. I think that's a thing. And she's like relatively famous. But she's also a serial killer. And she also fucks her car. And uh, now she's on the run. And whatever that means for someone who just fucked a car and is on the run for murder and is kind of famous, that's what this movie is. Now, I only, in giving that plot description, I only gave you the first 10, 15 minutes of the movie. Um, and it's a movie that the energy constantly changes. The, the type of movie it seems to want to be constantly changes, but not in a way that I would say that it's lost. It's very well managed. Um, I would say at every every like 10, 15 minutes, I would be like, all right, where is this going? I think I know where it's going. And then it would escalate in some new way, sometimes in a way that was very explosive, other times in a way that was tender, but deeply, deeply affecting. And it changes everything. And I think it's worth pointing out that that this movie, that is a word to describe it. It's a very tender movie. It's fucked up. It's hardcore. There's body horror. There's some, like, emotionally disturbing stuff. Like, emotional horror that, that kind of lands in areas that I would say are are inherently problematic and inherently uh, gray area in a way that, that I wouldn't say could be seen towards, that, towards advocacy, but uh, in removing judgment from the equation... I could see it being upsetting, uh, but I don't think there's been any type of pushback like that for this, which I think speaks to how well it's managed in the movie. Um, yeah, just really, really upsetting stuff and always, always surprising, but it is a very tender movie. There's a weird softness and sweetness to it that I did not expect and that I think is, is very deftly woven into something that's quite visually arresting and quite visually upsetting. Uh, there are more than a few images that made me cringe. I can get why someone would walk out. Um, but there's also a moment that probably the most horrifying thing I have seen in a movie all year occurs. And it is long, and it is unforgiving, and it is an arduous journey to get through. Ends on one of the silliest, goofiest visual gags ever. Um, it was at that moment pretty early on where I was like, okay. So rather than like when I watch a movie, I always like to just like, all right, we're going in base levels, like three and a half stars here. 
and then it's it's just either gonna and I don't like to think in terms of stars, so this is more of an after the fact thing. But where things go, you know, you go oh, that, boom, that gets some points there. I switched the meter as soon as this visual gag happened. I was like, okay, well, this is a five star movie, and now I just got to see if there's any mistakes, and there are none. Oh my god, it's and the soundtrack's killer. Um, there's there's like a slasher sequence in it almost that is really horrifying and characters that you've only known for seconds meet their end and there's a way that that Ducorno has written written this character completely only in a few seconds so that the death hurts and bodies are treated simultaneously with such abandon in this movie that it's like a free-for-all crazy party of of insanity but also with a sanctity that speaks to you know, this movie does get into, you know, bodily autonomy, it gets into gender identity, and it gets into these things, it kind of dances around with them in the realm of, you know, how someone feels within their body. So there's like a sacredness and a sanctity of the having of a body and the expression of a body that runs through this movie. But this doesn't come at the expense of the fact that blood flies and bodies are shredded to pieces. It's it's like nothing I've ever seen, and it is an absolutely phenomenal piece of cinema. It's cinema! It's art! Uh, oh, last... So, yeah, the other movie we're going to talk about, I will say there was a... The MGM card at the beginning of No Time to Die has uh, the the lion, you know, in it. And I never read the banner, and the banner says, uh, Ars Gratis Artis. I believe, which stands for arts for art's sake. And it actually translated that at the beginning of the And a piece of me was like, yeah, art for art's sake. But another piece of me was like rolling my eyes to the back of my head. I'm like, yeah, MGM, you are about making the best movies and not making the Sure, studio, like, you know, this is a money game. Always is, always is. has been. But let's wrap up on, on Tatane. Did I make any notes in my phone? It's just like... It's just an un, unbelievably brilliant movie. I was absolutely floored by it. I was disgusted by it. Any movie that that can challenge, but also, you know, be be, it can be abrasive without being abrasive. You know, like you can show me the dark side, and you're not hitting me with sandpaper. And this tests the limits, and it it pushes the limits of goodwill and good taste in a way that that. Where I, I, I can't imagine anybody walked out of the movie with the notion of, fuck this movie, this is evil. I I can't imagine people walked out of the movie saying, this is a lot for me to take right now. And I think that says something to the framing of all the stuff that's handled in there. It's like, yeah, it is abrasive, it is in your face, but there's no maliciousness to it. And it's really interesting to see. Um, you know, we, we do often get into battles about, you know... Who can say what and when and and when it's appropriate and how to do it and tone policing and all that stuff. And, you know, I've always been a free speech purist, but like at the same time, you know, it, these are conversations worth having, like we were saying earlier about the Chappelle thing. So something like Tatane that clearly pushes the envelope, like is pushing the envelope that ardent free speech dis- defenders like myself you know, often err on the side of being being jerks about to protect. It it pushes that envelope like I'm 
like I always want to defend the right to do, but I don't think it does it in any way with 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 any sort of malevolence, which is uh, insanely difficult to do, but proves that it is possible. Um, just awesome stuff. And uh, man, what an insane central performance. It, it's completely transformative and it is dark and it is, it's rough, but it's funny. I loved it. Uh, highly recommend. And if you feel safe going to theaters and you can do it safely, I highly recommend seeing Titan on Stein on the biggest screen that you possibly can with the loudest sound because it is, it's something to behold. And I would double down on that and say that you should do the same for No Time to Die. Uh, wow. No Time to Die. This has been on the shelf for a long time. Keeps getting delayed. This is the farewell to Daniel Craig because this is his last contractual bond. This was placed into the hands of Kerry Joji Fukunaga after Danny Boyle stepped down. Um, you know, I don't want to say that it was a troubled production, but there were hurdles. And with, you know, you look back at something like Tenet that tried to like, welcome back to the theaters. And it like didn't quite take because, you know, people just weren't ready yet. It it's it's still risky to be like blockbuster cinema. It's time to go. And they seem to have hedged their bets on uh, on No Time to Die. Well, it's finally out. And it's awesome. Two hours and 43 minutes of Bond. That's a lot of Bond. But it's just a really good day at the movies. And it's a whole day at the movies. It's what I did yesterday. It's absolutely fantastic. You gotta see it. You gotta see it on the biggest screen possible. It is so gorgeously shot. Um, Daniel Craig is more keyed in than he's been in this series in a while. And I'm not going to say that he checked out... Um, that was my original opinion with Spectre. I don't feel that way anymore. I definitely fared better, as indicated on my last episode. Um, fared better after watching the entire series. But No Time to Die is definitely the second best Daniel Craig Bond behind Casino Royale, which was sort of a lightning in the bottle moment. I also think it might be the second best Bond ever, once again behind Casino Royale. It's a lot of movie, but it hits every note. And so, yeah, it's a lot to ask of a crowd to say, hey, come sit in this enclosed theater with a bunch of people you can't trust for almost three hours. That's a tall ask right now, but it seems that it's doing pretty well. I, I'm not interested in box office, but I initial reports seem to say that it's doing, like, real well. And, um, yeah, it's... Uh, it's just totally worth seeing. It's a huge ask, but I think people are going to turn up. People love Bond. I love Bond. Bond is an institution. It's why people have such strong opinions about who should play Bond, what a Bond should look like, and, you know, all that fucking garbage. Whatever it is. Um, I think Daniel Craig brought it home. There's no denying that he is the best Bond. If you have another Bond that you prefer, I'm not going to fight you on it. Because I think we can all agree that Bond is awesome. It's just, it's one of those institutions that's fun. It goes through its bad, it goes through its good. It's like SNL, it just keeps on coming. And you're never, it's like Batman. It's, you know, you don't like this Bond, well, there's another one coming in a couple years. This, however, has been the longest gap between Bonds. It's been, I think, six years between No Time to Die's release and the release of Spectre. That's a very, very long time. Um, 
I remember when I saw Spectre, it was around the time Creed came out. We've had two Creeds since the the time of one Bond. So it's definitely a, uh, I say definitely a lot, don't I? Indubitably. It, it's been a while. I think the longest gap before that was between License to Kill and Goldeneye, which was just under six. I think it was six years, but we're at more days now. So pretty big gap. But that was between Bonds, like between Bond actors. This is just between Bond 4 and Bond 5. Um, it's, it's interesting, too, that this started before Pandemic, but there is a uh, infection narrative within this i don't think there's really many there's much to do by way of parallels because obviously this was written before then i do wonder if any of it was like written out um because this movie while very well written i think thematically hits all of the notes i would say damn near perfectly there are some plot elements but you know that's almost par for the course for a bond uh sometimes like you just check out and you go the bads are bad the goods are good let's get to the giant base and start shooting in it and it kicks ass um i do think that overall the craig bonds have had the strongest individual plots uh in, in terms of followability um because i think that they're trying to you know they what's new about craig's bond is that there is a multi uh, multi movie character arc for bond there have been multi-movie connections between character there have been multi-movie connections between plot but uh, like between characters and their interactions not not like character arcs and with plot connectivity you know shades of that here and there and i think that the the craig bonds have succeeded most in having a character arc for bond the plots all connecting uh they kind of whiffed that inspector when it was you know i am the architect of your whatever mr bond i'm just so excited to be a bad guy because i'm christoph waltz Ooh, <coughs> excuse me um yeah i think that 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 works fine i mean it's on brand but it's one of those things that that doesn't quite land but the character stuff has always landed from skyfall going back to his youth you know connecting that youth to to blofeld uh, seeing how Bond can be burned by a complicated love, his problematic fave, Vesper Lind, and then new problematic fave, uh, is it Matilda? I forget her name. She's not as uh, memorable as Vesper, but I actually think they do have a sweeping romance in in this one. And so that's the that's what's cool about this is that No Time to Die is a romance movie. It's a big old epic romance between James Bond and I gotta say it's Matilda, right? It's gotta be, isn't it? Matil can I call you Matil? Madeline! Oh my god, there's another character named Matilda, I think, that I don't want to spoil quite yet. Yeah, there is. Alright, sorry guys. Sorry guys, I'm a French racist. The uh uh yeah, Mat Fuck. Madeline, played by Alea Seydoux. Um, at the end of Spectre, it was like, oh, it's kind of a lukewarm romance that they're trying to shoehorn in here. I think that they actually turn it into something believable and real by the end of No Time to Die that uh, really does work for me. Um, I don't know if it's as fiery as uh, with Vesper Lind, Eva Green's character, but he's an older Bond now. He's got to settle down, be, be, be family man, you know? And... Uh, they play into that here, and I think that the the cadence of the romance with Madeline feels more middle-aged, and it's very, you know, 
one of the criticisms of a Roger Moore bond is that by the end, he's this like smashing playboy, but he's also like pushing 70, you know, and it, it's, it's, you know, no love lost to super hunk Roger Moore, but it is a, a thing that, that I think in the modern bonds we've tried to work around, you know, one of bonds characteristics that is both essential and cringy to look back at is that he's like pretty hardcore misogynist. They've, they're trying to boil that out of him now, and I think they mostly successfully do, but they still manage to have him be like the playboy type. Um, they just do very strong character work, and I think that existing as the first Bond movies in the shadow of like the Mission Impossibles as we know it, and in the shadow of John Wick as we know it, those things are invoked into this bond. There's like sort of a tower defense run and gun fight scene that's very evocative of Wick, but also keeping in the spirit of the style of long take that Kerry Fukunaga does. Um, there's also, you know, the middle of Craig's tenure was the post born and it sort of like took that on. Um, like I said, this is the post John Wick and Mission Impossible. Oh yeah, so this is now, you know, he's got a team now. Um, Bond has always worked with the team, but Bond has always, you know, he flies solo. And now there's a more active team element. There is another 007, uh, because where No Time to Die picks up is where he's been out of the game for five years. So they have passed his, his moniker on, uh, to a character named Nomi played by Lashana Lynch, who's fantastic in this. And so she's the new 007. And there's tension between them as to who should be called 007. And uh, so naturally they brush up against one another and slowly have to earn one another's respect. And it's a great dynamic. Um, but she's part of the team. Even when they're like, they're, you know, uh, testy with one another, they're still co-workers and they still get the job done. But like Moneypenny, part of the team. Mallory, part of the team. Uh, Rory Kinnear's character that I always forget, Tanner, is it? Who's, yo, low-key goat of the series. He always shows up and gets the job done. Part of the team. Uh, they bring Q into it. They interrupt a, Q's about to go on a date. And they interrupt Q's date to make him do like hacking stuff. And, uh... This is not a spoiler, but I am saying something that happens in the movie. We never get to check back in on Q's date, and I hope that it went well for him. I hope that it went well for Q, and uh, what are you going to do? He's excited. He's having he's having a guy over for dinner, and then Bond busts in and is just like, Q, I know we don't get along, but I need you to hack this. And Q's just like, oh, trollop, and you know, it's... But it's great. And so they really do this group dynamic thing very, very well. Um... And I think that the uh, the casual moviegoer would say, oh, they're trying to set up, you know, the, the next iteration. Like, remember when Triple X ended with a team, like, oh, they're trying to build a team to do the next Mission Impossible. So it's like, oh, well, the next Bond movie be more team-based like Mission Impossible. Perhaps it will. Um, I'm not against it. It worked very well here, but it is still very much a Bond movie. Um, these are all plot mechanics, but... That, that are tied in thematically well, for example, with the new 007 stuff. Um, and I will say there was when they said that she was playing, that uh, Lashana Lynch was playing 007 in this movie, a lot of people were, were of the, the indication that she would be taking over the reins of Bond as a series. The folks behind Eon, <laughs> the Broccoli's, they made it clear that this was not the case, that... Um, they would be moving forward with a male bond. And so 
And where I stand on this is like, hey, as long as it's good, I don't care what Bond is. I do think there is something inherently male about Bond. I do agree with the comments from Daniel Craig recently just saying, like, no, make a new female character for women. That said, watching this movie, No Time to Die, if they did go the angle of Lashana Lynch as the new the new Bond as she has inherited the 007 uh, moniker, like, that's, that is totally fine by me. She's fantastic. Um, and honestly, across the board, the Bond girls are all fantastic. Now... After the credits of this movie, it does uh, it does continue the trend of saying James Bond will return at the end. So and they, and they didn't say 007 will return. It very quickly, it very clearly says James Bond will return. It doesn't say a specific movie like it has done in the past. Uh, I don't think it's done that in the Craig movies, but it does. Uh, yeah, it does say James Bond will return. So I'm assuming they are going to move forward with a male Bond. Um, that said, if there was like another series that was the adventures of Lashana Lynch as Nomi, new 007, I'm into that too. Whatever you want to do, just make it fucking good. That's all I care about. But I do want to point out that like, she was, gr- she's great in it. And the people who were testy about it, like, don't worry about it, dudes. Like, there's nothing to worry about here. She, she does the job right. And, um, but yeah, the Bond girls across the, across the board are fantastic. Uh, Naomi Harris has a bigger role as Money Penny, which rocks because she's the best Money Penny. Um, what's her name? Ana de Armas shows up just for a little bit. She has a single scene, not a single scene, like a single segment, but she, uh, she kind of functions as the anti-Bond girl because she's very resilient to the charms of Daniel Craig and uh, then does, in perfect Bond girl fashion, a kick-ass fight scene in a gown and heels, which, you know, mad, mad, mad respect. And, uh, you know, and then, yeah, Leia Sedu as, you know, his his paramour here is... Uh, I mean, she, she's awesome. I mean, who doesn't love her? And she has the strongest character arc out of all of them. I almost hesitate to call her a Bond girl because Bond girls are so impermanent and she is a permanent fixture here. Um, but they play into this idea of Bond is ready to get out of the game. He's ready to settle down and be the man that, that Madeline deserves. And uh, he keeps getting dragged back in. And one of the the one of the the problems of being a spy is that you never know who to trust even amongst those that you trust it's it's an awful side effect of it but that's how he stayed alive and so he and madeline are both characters with secrets and both are guarded about about letting out all of their secrets so there's this tension there and the film sort of opens in a way that's like this is this is what they're doing they're spending time together to make sure that they can trust one another and do this right and retire and be and be done, be out of this this out of this life, and of course the life draws both of them back in. But it's very the way that they do it is very strong because throughout the movie, we we see relationships that Bond has with people, and the ones that are most successful and most beneficial are the ones that ultimately have trust between them, and I think that that's sort of what is is being explored in this bond you know felix lighter shows up jeffrey wright gr- the best felix lighter he shows up and they have a scene together and it, they have they have many scenes together sorry where they uh you know where where it comes down to 
we're going to work together on this and it's going to be successful, not because of professional courtesy, not because of duty, but because we're friends, because we care. And I'm sure there's more examples that, that will you know come up from multiple viewings of the movie, but even down to Rami Malek's character, he's the big bad in this and he's, he's like kind of barely in it. I think he does a good job with it. I genuinely like Rami Malek. He's doing your standard Bond villain. He's, you know, he's he's kind of fey. He's kind of weird, but he just does the things that he does because, you know, in a world where no one has emotion, it's a world where powers which speaks and I will have power. And also, look at the wounds that I have. I'm so damaged by these wounds. He's doing like a actually, you know, I sound like I sound like the Midnight Mass pr- uh, preacher. Um, yeah, it's like this, like, post-Malkovich thing where I'm just so fey about evil. It's banal, but I will also eat your balls on a plate if you presented them to me. Like, he has just that kind of fucking weird-ass vibe. And, uh, but his whole thing is that he's holed off from the world and he wants control because he's terrified of the chaos. And Bond brushes up against him and actually has, like, a great... Mo- like, it's usually the villain that monologues. Bond monologues at him about him being a small man. And it's a moment of, like, Bond just embracing this idea of, like, yeah, you know what? I don't trust a lot of people, but I have a group of friends that I do trust and I do care about. And it's our friendship that gives us the ability to keep being relevant in a world where spies are are increasingly irrelevant. Which, to be fair, is the exploration of, like, every Bond since Goldeneye is, you know, you're a dinosaur, 007. I don't know if there's any value to you left. And then he's just like, hmm, you know, that, that'll, that's been, you know, going forever, but they bring it home. Here is the point. Um, we are going to get into spoilers for bond in a minute, but I don't want to get into it quite yet. So, uh, the one more thing that I will say about this is that there were a handful of moments, both action and both character that caused the theater I was in to bubble over with enthusiasm and either applaud or do like, oh, because uh, right at the outset, there's like a great, like he zips up a ramp on a motorcycle and it's such a stellar little stunt that which the action is shot beautifully, by the way. I mean, everything's shot beautifully. It's a gorgeous fucking movie. Uh, when that happens, like there's, there's a couple of action beats that really caused the theater to just react and it was beautiful but there's also a couple great emotional moments that you could hear the theater react to and um it's been a while since i've seen that happen i mean like cap grabbing thor's hammer that like was a big moment when batman in the dark knight does his little motorcycle like up the wall turnaround after flipping the joker's truck that got that always got a big rise but there was like three or four times throughout no time to die that uh just oh man just Everybody went off. So definitely highly recommend the experience. I said definitely again. If you can see this in the on the big screen, please do. All right. I would like to get into spoilers about No Time to Die. And they are big spoilers. Because this is a movie that, against type of many big blockbusters I've seen recently was surprising. It was regularly surprising. There's a couple plot elements that tie in with one another that I need to talk about, but they're all meant to be surprising. So, from this point forward, spoiler alert for No Time to Die. 
I'm only going to go for a few more minutes before wrapping up the episode anyway. So, if you just want to fast forward to the end, that's fine. Go see the movie, you won't regret it, and then come back and we'll talk spoilers. Spoilers start now. Daniel Craig is the first Bond to have a connective character arc, which is why he's also the first Bond to die. I can't believe that the secret has been kept for this long already, especially since Bond was released overseas. I cannot believe that the vultures of the film journalism world have not already jumped on the idea of No Time to Die, Bond dying. But I also can't believe that a movie called No Time to Die, that's Daniel Craig's last movie, that I didn't go in expecting Bond to die. I was completely blown away by this development. And I'm assuming if you're here listening that you've seen the movie, so we don't have to like get too deep into how it happened. But the moment it happened was so effective and so moving, and it was because of five movies of character work. I always liked Bond as a plot element. I always liked Bond as a cipher that I can inject myself into as the glamorous life of a spy. In the Daniel Craig movies, this is the first time that he's vulnerable, that he feels like he could be hurt. Um, One of the rules of Bond is that he's unstoppable. He is the immovable force. He's, He's essentially an Ethan Hunt. He is fate incarnate, and he has chosen you as his next mission. But there was a vulnerability to Craig's bond that was always there. It stems back to Casino Royale. In the opening sequence, the kick-ass parkour sequence through the diamond mine, when he realizes he's going to have to make a jump to a crane to chase this parkour master, which I guess if you're a parkour guy, getting into like smuggling of of uh, conflict diamonds is... is the natural progression of things. Or maybe it's the other way. When you're good at that, you get good at parkour. But he has to make the jump. And there's a tired look that Bond has to do that's, oh shit, I don't know if I can do this, but I guess I have to. And, you know, Pierce Brosnan, and I said this before, he's like the irritated Bond. It's less a, oh, I can't do this, and more a, oh, can't believe I'm going to have to tap into this fucking skill set again. You know, uh, There might be a little bit of that vulnerability in Timothy Dalton's Bond, but Craig really is the, he's all of the best parts of every Bond together. He's the, you know, the stoic kind of, uh, you know, stoic, but, but self, uh, like very entertained with himself of Sean Connery. He's got the, uh, you know, aware of his good looks of George Lazenby. He's uh, a playful, just like, I'm going to live it up because I could die any day. I could die another day. I've got no time to die at this point. Of Roger Moore. And and also like the, uh, the Blondie Pants sort of thing. And uh, he's got the passion and romance of the more passionate Timothy Dalton. And then he also has the like, man, sometimes my job is tough of, uh, of uh, Pierce Brosnan. But, you know, thinking that he could be hurt, you know, this is a bond that bleeds. That's something that's new to Daniel Craig. And so it makes sense that he would be mortal. 
And when you kill Bond, you can't just kill him if he's still just a cipher for all of, you know, my, like, man drives to, to be catered to on screen. He has to actually work as a character. And by the end, when he is, which, the other big spoiler, you know, is when when he is silently confirming to Madeline that he knows that Matilda is his daughter and he knows that her refusing to say it is her protecting Matilda. He knows that no matter how much he goes to get out of this job, the job is always going to find him. But he also knows that he's the best to ever do it. He knows that after wondering whether he can trust Madeline with his own life, he knows for a fact now that he can trust the life of his daughter in the hands of Madeline. Um, and partially because of his daughter's existence, changing them both. And, you know, they're zooming in close on those big baby blues as the explosions are coming. And as him and Madeline are expressing, the, <clears throat> excuse me, expressing their love for one another. But also while the team is listening in, why all of all of MI6 is listening into what they're saying. It's a really gorgeously done moment. And to have Bond explode by getting hit by a shower of beautiful missiles is something that seems so extreme that it couldn't possibly be thematically and characteristically resonant, and it is, and deeply so. I felt it. I felt it hard, and I got teary-eyed, and I was very moved by this, and it makes that post-credits thing of James Bond will return that much more effective because... Yes, James Bond will return. It will be a new James Bond. We don't know what he'll look like or what he'll be. We do know that'll be different. And it does feel like it's Eon just saying, like, the one constant is James Bond, but we understand that every new canon is going to be different. Bring it on. And so whereas it might not be the most, uh, you know, the most completely, you know, let's change up all the demographic, super progressive answer to all of them, I think it does show consideration on Eon's part that, like, Things are going to be different. Things can always be different. The one thing we can just count on is that James Bond will be back. Whatever he is, whatever form the moniker of Bond takes, he'll be back. We'll keep him coming. There might be a delay, but... uh, And, and I think it's fair to have a delay because, you know, Bond's dead. Let's give it a rest for a little bit and maybe create a new character. Maybe make it a lady. Maybe do something special with it. You know... You know, maybe it's time, like, we are stuck in a loop where as soon as we announce a new Bond, we're already speculating the next Bond, so maybe we just, like, take a break and have them just announce, hey, we got our Bond. My vote's for Henry Golding. Um, it's, uh, man, it's just incredible. Uh, oh, yeah, and Fukunaga does this great thing towards the end where he frames Bond in a tube tunnel, and Bond has to turn and shoot real fast, and it's an actual, like, diegetic use of the imagery of Bond uh, in in the little circle at the beginning where he shoots the guy and he wobbles and falls. And so, yeah, I think it's a, it's just, it's a smart, self-aware Bond that does not try and do fan service really in any way whatsoever. But there are a lot of little smart moments. Um, there's a really great line, I'm going to fuck it up. But uh, in the scene where Felix Leiter is pretty much understanding that he's about to die and Bond is telling him, like, no, I am going to save you. And Leiter just has like a, uh, you know, like, oh, don't bullshit me, Bond. We know you got to finish the miss mission. Although I think in the moment they both do believe Bond is going to do his best to save him. But Leiter, being his friend, says, don't save me because that will kill us both. 
go live, blah, blah, blah. But he has this great line where he says, oh, man, this, because they're, they're like in a, a boat that's sinking. And he goes, oh, this reminds me of childhood uh, on the shrimp boat. And Bond is like, what are you talking about, Felix? You lived, you grew up in Milwaukee. And he goes, you're from Milwaukee. And Leiter goes, am I? I thought I made that one up. And tying into the whole thematic thing of Bond, like knowing his friends and all that, it goes to show like Leiter's in so deep that he doesn't even know where he's from anymore. And Bond can look back on any time that Leiter has ever given him his background and go, I don't know if that's true or not. But he still knows that Felix is his friend. That no matter where, that no matter who he is, where he's from, or what he did, as long as he loves him, he's still his friend. And uh, and Leiter feels that way about Bond too. He knows that Bond's got to complete the mission, but he knows that Bond will die to save him. And it's this beautiful moment of their friendship that that, like I said, speaks to the theme of there's a lot of dishonesty here. There's a lot of lies here. There's a lot of putting up airs that that you're a different person than you are. But they know, they recognize one another's hearts, and that's that's why they can trust one another. So well done, so so well done. Um, yeah, Fukunaga, who shot this? Let's let's look up the DP because it's gotta be, it's got it's got to be somebody. Um, cinematographer is Linus Sandgren. I don't quite know that name. Okay, so La La Land. Oh, La La Land and First Man. So are already one of the best to ever do it. First Man. That's one of the most well-directed movies ever made, and it's one of the most well-shot-up movies ever made. Go back and rewatch it. American Hustle, The Nutcracker, Joy. Oh, he see, he worked with uh, Russell too. Promised Land, Six Souls. I don't know what that is. This guy knows what he's doing. Um, right on. And uh, it's a Swedish cinematographer. Very cool. Yeah, it's just beautifully done. Uh, the score, Zimmer's score, is great. You know, it's just Zimmer doing Zimmer, but uh, does bring in the Bond theme a little bit a couple times that really work. And uh, where is it? Who edited? I'm actually very curious. Tom Cross. Okay, so he's wh- uh, Whiplash. So, yeah, hell of an edit. And Elliot Graham. Oh, so like Steve Jobs. Oh, interesting. I wonder if he's a, le- a holdover from when Boyle was attached to No Time to Die, because he did Steve Jobs, which was Danny Boyle. Look at that. And Captain Marvel, Trust, Milk, 21, Superman Returns. Okay, so yeah, all like well-done stuff. Yeah, No Time to Die is just, it's just phenomenal. I loved every minute of it. I think it's the second best Bond ever. And um, the fashion is tight cars are tight it delivers everything that a bond says it's going to deliver and uh also you know does a bunch of brand new things with bond i loved it i absolutely loved it all right if you're coming back spoilers are over in fact the show is over so once again check out at movie movie cast on all of the things shoot me an email movie movie cast at gmail.com I'm at Dan Scully on all of the things. You can find links to everything I do at scullyvision.com. Um, I've got reviews that are coming out for moviejohn.com, staff writer there. This show is part of the Movie John Podcast Network. Please follow the Movie Jam Podcast Network because there's a lot of very cool stuff on the network. And um, yeah, I want to hear some feedback from you because uh, ever since taking the show solo, I've... 
I don't want to say I'm at a loss, but I'm really trying to figure out how I want to format things, and I'm trying to play with it a little bit. I've really just been enjoying ranting into the microphone for you guys, but I don't know if I have the self-confidence to feel like that's something people would listen to. So hit me with some feedback. I would love to hear it. Um, I do have some format ideas coming up, and I do have some spin-off episodes that, that I would like to do that are adjacent to it. Uh, but right now, I'm just going to be having some fun like this and doing some interviews, which we've got some cool stuff coming up. Um, I will let you know more on that. So just follow all of the things. Um, Philadelphia Film Festival is on the horizon. That'll be up in a few weeks, so there might be a delay in some episodes. But um, you can check out my coverage of that on Findy.com. Uh, once again, though, I will be linking to all of that from Scully Vision. And if you're interested in sillies, check out my other podcast, Hot Property, uh, which me and my buddy Stephen Richards goof off and eat crazy foods. And it's just a blast. Uh, but we've been on hiatus for a week because of my trip to Seattle. So I'm very excited to get back to that. I love you guys so much. Thanks for listening to this. Thanks for listening to me rant and rave. Um, it's it's been a, a stressful year for all of us, and um, I think everybody's doing their best, and I think we should just keep doing our best. This last month has been one of those like stressful, relaxful Johns because of vacation. It's stressful to vacate, but it's always restorative to vacate too. And um, uh, if you're feeling safe to travel, I couldn't recommend it enough. Um, I, I think movies and books we've always said are empathy machines i think that that travel is an empathy catalyst um you know you hop a thousand miles to the left and see how they do it and you just realize the breadth of of humanity is a is a beautiful uh chaotic scary but wonderful thing and it's a powerful tool and i think we could use it so thank you so much for listening and uh once again remember there's something to love about every movie. Yes. Even that one. If I was Rami Malek in, in No Time to Die, I'd be like, you'll see a lot of movies in your life, and when you watch them, you'll feel some type of way about them. You might like them. You might not. You might feel middling. But there's at least one thing to like about each and every one of them. And that is why I must try and destroy the world with disease robots and plant bombs. Alright, thank you for putting up with me. I love you. Bye.